Good morning. If we haven't met previously, my name's Alon. I'm one of the members of Eastgate Bible Church, and it's my pleasure to be bringing you a message from the Word of God this morning. <clears throat> I hope you're well rugged up and comfortable. Um, as you might have noticed from the Bible reading, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. God's Word is dynamic and powerful, and it's my prayer that God might be working in your heart today as we read through the Word and as we explore it a bit further. Let's take a moment to pray to that effect. Mighty Lord, Sovereign King, we come before you because we hunger and thirst for more of you. Help me to humbly and truthfully handle your word for your glory and yours alone. We want to receive from your word. Help us to prepare our hearts accordingly and speak to us, we pray. Change us and transform us. Amen. Last time I was up here, uh, the elders gave me the mercy of choosing a passage for me. This time they've taken the training wheels off and they've allowed me to choose a passage. And I must say it was a challenge and I'm not sure I've, I'm not sure I've made a wise decision. You see, the story we have today involves a plague. And what weighs heavier on our hearts today than a plague? There is a danger then that we might misappropriate the text and come to it listening more to our own concerns than to the word of God. If at the end of this service you feel the need to climb up picnic point and offer uh, sacrifices to atone for the sin of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, then can I suggest that you might have missed something in the sermon? We're not looking here for a COVID-19 survival guide, but we are looking for the eternal truths in God's eternal word, which will have ongoing benefit in our life. In our life. Putting things in context, it's approximately a thousand years before the time of Christ. Israel is the nation that God has chosen for himself, and David is the king that God has chosen to put over the nation of Israel. And David has shown great courage and valor and the kingdom prospers. And then, like a storm that comes in rapidly on a pleasant summer's afternoon, we suddenly have a very dark chapter in the history of Israel. Very soon we find ourselves looking face to face with the angel of the Lord, sword in hand, as the wrath of God blows in like a tempest. The story unfolds very quickly, and before we try to grasp its application, I wonder if we can go over the story once more to ensure that we understand it properly. It raises many questions, some of which we'll find answers to, and some of which we won't. Let's begin. Reading from verse 1. Satan. Okay, stop there. We're one word in, and already the questions begin to stack up. Satan. What is he doing here? Where did he come from? Why isn't Satan mentioned in the account recorded in 2 Samuel? <clears throat> and before going further, we should note that the Bible contains two accounts of this story. We read it in 2 Samuel, and we read it in 1 Chronicles. The two accounts are very similar. They do not contradict each other, but each offers some information that the other account doesn't offer. The information they offer is that which they feel is most relevant 
uh, to teach the lessons that they aim to teach. We'll try to stick to First Chronicles and so hear its message for us today. We will, however, occasionally draw details from the account in 2 Samuel. Now 2 Samuel begins, sorry, now 2 Samuel 24 begins, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them. While 1 Chronicles 21 begins this way, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. Despite appearances, these are not contradictory, state, contradictory statements. I say, Queen Elizabeth built a palace. You say, the labourers built a palace. They're both true. But the question is, who is the one who is in authority? Who is the one who devises the plan? Who is the one who gives the order? Who is the one who uses the other to do their own bidding? And the overwhelming answer from Scripture is God. God is the one who is in control. And Satan, the adversary, Satan is so much inferior that here he is even used as a pawn to accomplish God's purposes. So while 2 Samuel identifies the will of God and emphasizes his sovereignty, 1 Chronicles identifies the agency of Satan and reinforces that David's choice is indeed very sinful. He has listened to the voice of Satan. After this verse, Satan is not mentioned again. He is not the protagonist of this story. He is not the protagonist of history. That honour belongs to God. Now, still in the first verse, we read of the census. What is so wrong about a census? Moses had a census. Solomon had a census. Neither was punished. What is so wrong about David's census? In short, we don't know. Yet it certainly was very wrong. And even Joab, Joab of all people, can see this. Was David preparing for an unjust war? Was he puffed up with pride? Was he placing his trust in man rather than in God? Maybe he didn't follow the stipulations for a census as recorded in Exodus chapter 30. And there we read that if a census is conducted, it's required that each man pay a ransom after he is counted, a ransom to the Lord. And interestingly, it is noted that this is to avert the potential of a plague. But exactly what was wrong here? Ultimately, we don't know. And that itself is interesting. In the account recorded here in Chronicles, the human author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shines the spotlight on David's culpability. And yet the exact nature of his transgression is not even spelled out thoroughly. In 2 Samuel 24, our parallel passage, the human author, again inspired by the Holy Spirit, shifts the spotlight slightly to better illuminate the culpability of the people of Israel. But their transgression is not even mentioned. Perhaps in both passages, the emphasis is not on the many ways one can err, but on the one way that many can be reconciled. Moving on to verse 2, and I do promise we'll pick up some speed. David says to Job, I want you to go out and count the fighting men. Job says, whoa, don't do it, man. David pulls rank and rather reluctantly, Job goes off and he counts the men. 
although he doesn't even finish the job. It's so disgusting that he doesn't count the tribes of Levi and of Benjamin. He comes back and the report is given to David. The census is finished and the anger of God is aroused. David comes to his senses and he pleads with God. Let me read it. I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. Despite David's plea, God announces through the prophet Gad that there will be a consequence for this sin. Why doesn't the merciful God relent then and there? Again, this is one of the mysteries of this passage. God will relent, but he doesn't do it just yet. Is he schooling the king still further in the practice of repentance? We don't know. We'd need to remember that the people of Israel are not without blame. Is there, is there some transforming purpose he has for them? We don't know. Is there some deeper purpose? We don't know. The prophet Gad, speaking on behalf of the Lord who sent him, says, David, you have three options. Three years of famine, or three months of invasion, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague. David's choice is not 100% clear. He says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. It seems clear that he doesn't want three months of invasion falling into the hands of man. But when he says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, it's not entirely clear whether he's saying, of the other two options, God, you can choose, or is he making reference to the sword of the Lord, the sword in God's hand and saying, God, I want to fall into your hands. Beneath your sword, I choose option three, plague. More important than understanding the choice, however, is understanding the rationale behind the choice. And this is clear. David is banking on the mercy of God, for as David says, his mercy is very great. David is in effect saying, God, I want you to deliver the punishment. You yourself. I don't want you to use a middleman. I want this to come from your hand, because I know you. And I know that though I would deserve everything that I get, yet I know that you are longing to show me mercy. We could ask, is God any less in control of an invading army that he has summoned to do his bidding? Can't he still relent? Can't he still rein them in and show mercy? God is all-powerful. Of course he can. Yet for David there seems to be some comfort in choosing uh, that which is perhaps more tangibly within the realm of God's sovereignty. And I suspect we can probably all sympathise with him there. We all do this a little bit. Um, is it easier for us to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over, say, the weather than over, say, politics, or to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over, say, our health than over, say, the attitudes of our employer? Going forwards, God sends the plague and it sweeps through the country. This is a devastating contagion. 
But the spiritual reality is that this is nothing less than the angel of the Lord wielding the sword against Israel. Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. <clears throat> your, Bible, your Bible might read Aruna uh, rather than Ornan. Uh, it makes little difference because I don't know how to pronounce either of them correctly. But essentially this reflects a variance in translation. So God pauses the executioner. But note the sword is still drawn. David, David he climbs the hill. He buys the land, he builds an altar, and he offers a sacrifice. And then in verse 27 we read, After all this has transpired and God has accepted the offering, God speaks to the angel, and the angel puts his sword back in his sheath. The plague is ended. Okay, is everyone still with me? <clears throat> We're about one third of the way in. Uh, it's going to be a long one. This is your chance to stand up, stretch your legs for a second. Come on. Up your hop, up your hop. Give those arms a bit of a stretch too. Turn around, say hello to the person in the pew behind you. I hope you're feeling comfortable uh, with the story so far. I hope you understand who's who and what's going on. Everyone finished having their stretch? Okay, let's all sit back down and let's get back to the text. We're going to start to really digest it. What is the relevance of this story for my life? I want to leave you with four take-home points. Corruption, repentance, sacrifice, and mercy. Corruption, repentance, sacrifice, and mercy. Let's begin with corruption. I should mention that um, scriptural references will generally be from the ESV unless we're reading from the Psalms, in which case I'll take them from the NIV if you're trying to follow along. I haven't done a slideshow, uh, but I'll try and verbally reference my scriptures. Who here, when they heard the Bible passage being read, started thinking of COVID-19? When we read a passage like this, we can't help but ask ourselves the question, why do catastrophes happen? We read here about a horrendous disaster, but it sounds unfortunately all too familiar. The focus of this scripture is not to address this question. This is perhaps better dealt with elsewhere in the Bible, reading the books of Genesis or Job or Romans. Let's reserve the majority of our attention today for the driving force of this passage. But, as catastrophe might be weighing heavily on our hearts, allow me to make a few brief remarks on corruption. It is all too evident that the world is a hostile place. Take 2019, for example. In 2019, we watched as uh, catastrophe caused crops to fail in East Africa and Ebola resurfaced in West Africa. In the Americas, we saw close to 5 million people flee the crisis that engulfed Venezuela. In Asia, the civil war in Syria continued to, to grumble on. By this stage, almost three quarters of the population, 13 million people, were requiring humanitarian assistance. In the neighbouring Middle East, the conflict in Yemen, in Yemen was not too dissimilar. 
and the situation there was then further complicated by an outbreak of cholera. And even on our own shores, we see flood, we see drought, we see fire. And this is just a snapshot. We could go on and on talking about story after story of catastrophe, of suffering, of death. Was 2018 any better? What about 2017? Even before COVID-19, our world was a perpetual tragedy. We, the human race, might be willing to accept the blame, say, for the civil unrest and the violence and the war. But when we see the so-called natural disasters, we have a habit of shaking our fist at God and saying, Why, God? How could you let this happen? This passage won't let us think, think like that. To start with, this is too low a view of God. God is not just sovereign over the natural realm. He is sovereign over people and nations as well. We see here he could have equally called forth a war as, say, a plague or a famine. Whatever the catastrophe, we must reckon with the truth that God has permitted it. But this passage also shows us that we have underrated ourselves. We are to blame not only for violence and war and aggression, but the human race is to blame for the plagues and famines as well. Our sin can easily precipitate either. In this passage, the plague is not a natural disaster. It is the consequence of human sin. Now, we need to be careful here. I'm not suggesting that the current pandemic is a consequence for the sin of any leader or people group. But we do well to remember that, though, sorry, we do well to remember, though, that God created a perfect world, but that the whole created order has now been subject to frustration as a result of our sin. God is sovereign. He is the one who subjected the world, but this does not make him capricious. The agonies of the world are neither undeserved nor without purpose. For some, the agonies of the world will bring them to repentance and save them from eternal punishment. So what can we do when we turn on the television set and we see yet another devastation? There are many biblically appropriate responses, but today we're going to focus on just one. Every time you are amazed at the horror of a new catastrophe, let it remind you afresh of the depth and horror of our sin. I'm ashamed that this year in Australia, in all likelihood, doctors will deliberately kill more patients than COVID-19. The Australian death toll from COVID-19 currently stands at approximately 100. And yet we know that every year in Australia, 100,000 babies are aborted. Their lives come to a cruel end at the very hands of those health professionals that we so quickly elevate. The world suffers corruption, but the guilt is on us, not on God. Moving on to point two, repentance. The drama of this story unfolds between its two central characters, God and David. Now, I have a bit of a problem. I don't like David. The shepherd, the warrior, 
the giant slayer, this I can warm to. But David was also a murderer and an adulterer. Yet God chooses him as a man after his own heart. He is anointed the king of Israel. He's given amazing promises concerning his family, promises that we now call, that we now regard as the Davidic covenant. His name is held in higher honour than any of the other earthly kings who ruled over Israel. So what's so special about David? I believe a big part of it is that David, as we'll see today, practices genuine repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So David writes in Psalm 51, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He goes on. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, I may be preaching to the converted. You all know what repentance is, right? Every night as you go to bed and you pull up the covers, you pause for a moment and you close your eyes and you say, Dear God, I guess I probably sinned today. Can you please forgive me? Thanks. Amen. Is this repentance? Does it sound familiar? Perhaps not. Perhaps I'm the only sinner who practices such superficial repentance. Yet I suspect that for a number of people, this hits close to home. And I suspect that for all of us, we've all at times offered shallow penitence to God. David takes us deeper. Reading, <clears throat> reading from verse 8. I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. My apologies, that's actually from the NIV. I've made a typo. When you think of repentance, don't think of someone crawling into bed, yawning and uttering a platitude. Think rather of someone whose heart is heavy within them and from their knees they cry out to God, I've been a fool. What is repentance? It is humbling ourselves before God. David here is clothed in sackcloth and he falls on his face before the Lord. It is a deep visceral disgust at our sin. Psalm 119 reads, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, but your law is not obeyed. It is a shouting, No, I do not want to live this way any longer. Ezekiel cries out, Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Ezekiel 18.30 Repentance turns its back on sin and it runs. Sin may still chase you. Its barbs may linger in your flesh, its voice in your ear. But repentance keeps on running. You may trip and you may stumble, but your back is always towards sin. Never again will you turn and embrace it. Repentance keeps on running, keeps on running, pressing, ever deeper into Christ until that glorious day when you see his face and all the darkness melts away. What is not repentance? Repentance is not treating our sins as though they are of no account, but neither is repentance punishing ourselves to make up for our sins. 
It is not self-flagellation. It is not punishment we inflict on ourselves. Our sins are not washed away by the tears that we shed, but by the blood that Christ shed. Repentance is to grieve sin, yes, but for the Christian we do not continue to grieve sin. For repentance leads to forgiveness and to joy. Again from Psalm 51, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Repentance is part and parcel of the gospel. Isaiah 30.15 reads, In repentance and rest is your salvation. We bring the sin to God and he takes care of the rest. But do bring your sin to God. How good are you at practicing repentance? Do we pause long enough to self-reflect and even consider our sins? Are we troubled by them? Good. In your anguish, bring them to God. Confess them one by one. Offer no excuses, but confess them with candid honesty. And find deliverance. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.9, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And from repentance, we now move on to our third point, sacrifice. The plague is spreading quickly through the land, and the angel of the Lord rapidly approaches Jerusalem, dispensing the wrath of God left, right, and center. Then God hits pause. Enough. David looks up, and there on the hill above Jerusalem, only a few hundred meters from the city gate, is the destroyer. And then in verse 17, David falls down in repentance once more. His anguish, if anything, appears to be deeper now. Before he confessed his sin, now he emphasizes his sin. He intercedes for the people, even offering himself to bear the wrath of God. We'll return to that a little bit later, actually. Now, the angel of the Lord sends a message to David via the prophet Gad. Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan. And as David reaches the top, there is the angel of the Lord. But there also is Ornan. How convenient. And Ornan not only willing, uh, is not only willing to sell his land so that David can build an altar, but he's willing to do so at no cost. And he's even going to throw in some free firewood and a cow. David's response is quite profound. No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. <clears throat> it's a Thursday night. Chelsea is expecting Charlie home for dinner any moment. She gets a double serve of two-minute noodles and she throws them in the microwave and she turns on the TV, uh, the TV and starts searching for anything half-interesting. The door opens and there's Charlie Cheap. And in his right hand, a stunning bouquet of roses. Oh, Charlie, for me? Chelsea smiles and her heart melts. Charlie looks back at her. Yes, Chelsea, because even on a mundane Thursday night, your very smile fills me with joy. At least, that's what he thinks about saying before honesty gets the better of him. And rather sheepishly, he replies, 
I think someone dropped them in the car park. I saw them as I was leaving work, lying in a puddle. Shame to waste them, really. The roses suddenly don't seem quite so beautiful. For David, Ornan's offer must have been attractive. Top of the hill real estate, city views, no cost. And David doesn't really have much spare cash, we shouldn't wonder, what with the epidemic and all. And he's probably gonna to have to budget for an economic stimulus package. To make things all more attractive, Ornan is a Jebusite. Taking the land off him, why? It's like taking Vegemite back from the multinational companies. But David knows that God doesn't need an ox any more than Chelsea needs a rose. Again, reading from Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. If God was hungry, I'm sure he could do a lot better than David's backyard barbecue. David is not going to be a Charlie cheap in his dealings with God. Why? Because the Lord looks on the heart. Here, God is interested not in a smouldering carcass, but in the allegiance and the affection of David's heart. God has asked David for a sacrifice of worship. Sacrifice and worship are connected. The first mention of worship in the Bible is in Genesis 22.5. God calls Abraham to go to the region of Moriah and there sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on a mountain. After journeying for three days, Abraham sees it in the distance and he instructs his servants to wait behind, telling them, I and the boy will go over there and worship. Going forward from here, we receive the Old Covenant and we see sacrifices featuring heavily in the prescribed worship practices of the people of Israel. And then under the New Covenant, is, is sacrifice excluded from worship? Hardly. We read in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What do we do with all this? Are there days when you find it hard to be a Christian? Being a Christian in the workplace, it's going to cost. Sharing your faith with a friend or family member, it might not be so easy. Ministry, ministry, have you ever felt like you're in it alone? No one says thank you, no one offers to help. Your contribution often goes unnoticed. Whenever sacrifice hurts, whenever there is pain in the offering, then bring to mind who it is that you sacrifice to. Remember that his loving eye is always on you, and nothing, nothing has and nothing will escape his notice. Remember the depth of his love and sacrifice for you, the price of Calvary. And then let joy into your heart, because your very sacrifice is a beautiful rose. Your life now rings with worship that echoes up before the throne of God on high. Finally, we come to our fourth point. Thank you for bearing with me. This is the last gem that I hope we can together mine from this scripture and apply to our lives. Enough of David. What does this passage teach us about God? 
the first things that we notice, so the first thing that we notice when we read through 1 Chronicles 21 is a God who punishes sin. The account in Samuel spells it out a little further. God was angry. He burned with anger. Our passage, however, does not expand on this very much, and neither shall we, save to say that we must understand that God is not okay with sin. God is not okay with murder and adultery. And neither is God okay with greed or pride or hate. God is not okay with sin. And this understanding is foundational for what we're about to explore. Take a moment to consider what lies in your heart. The thoughts, the feelings, the attitudes. The ones that perhaps only you know are there. Only you and God, that is. What does God see in your heart? What does God find when he probes the deep recesses, the hidden crevices? What does God find when he shines the spotlight there? We, like David, are confronting a holy God. Like David, we have sinned and provoked him to anger. David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand. But it is not the wrath of God that resonates through this passage, but rather his mercy. David knows this God who is full of mercy. As he earlier said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. And that is why when David looks up the hill and he sees the angel of the Lord, he goes to him. The angel, his sword drawn, poised, ready, hanging over Jerusalem. And yet David goes to him. This passage teaches, this passage teaches us that we cannot run from God, but we can run to him. This is a merciful God who longs to redeem. He is not a judge who takes pleasure in stacking up our offences, but he, had, he is a judge who is looking for a way to acquit us. The angel of the Lord approaches Jerusalem, and God says, Enough! The sword is not yet back in its sheath, but like a general who longs for peace, God calls a ceasefire. Oh, that they might repent and sacrifice and be restored! And so David climbs the hill. The hill, otherwise named Mount Moriah, and thought to be where Abraham offered up Isaac. The hill, which will become known as Mount Zion, the site of the temple. David climbs the hill and he offers a costly sacrifice. And God demonstrates his acceptance of such by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And the sword is put back in its sheath. The plague is ended and the righteous wrath of God has been appeased. And what we now begin to see is the God of the gospel. This is more than just a story about a few Israelites who lived 3,000 years ago. This story whispers to us about God's plan to one day save the world. The story opens with sin, with, with corruption. We see a broken world. Then we see a man who stands between the wrath of God and a sinful people. He intercedes for the people. He offers up sacrifices. Sorry, he offers up a sacrifice. And here we see the reconciliation of a sinful people to a holy God. How do we see it? Well, evidently because the plague has stopped, but also because this very spot is now identified to be the site where the house of God will be constructed. This is where the temple will be, where people will come to meet with a holy God. 
meeting him not by standing on the pedestal of their own achievements, but by kneeling at the altar of his mercy. And all of this points forward to the Christ. Jesus is God's answer to a world that is corrupted by sin. He was the one who climbed the hill of Calvary to stand between the wrath of God and a sinful people. There he interceded for us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke 23:34. There he offered sacrifice, not the blood of a bull, but his own blood to pay the debt of sin. And now, in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. In closing, I want to implore you. I want to implore you that if you have not yet made your peace with God, know that his sword of judgment hangs over you. You cannot run from God, but you can run to God because he is very merciful. He is longing to acquit you. He is longing to forgive you. He, he so desires to spare your life that he has given the life of his only son for you. God is a God of great mercy and there is forgiveness. Can I implore all of us, let us continue then to repent, to sacrifice, to worship, and to live in the mercy of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.